Welcome to the Global Development Institute podcast. Based at the University of Manchester, we're Europe's largest research and teaching institute addressing poverty and inequality. Each episode will bring you the latest thinking, insights and debate in development studies. Um, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are joining from. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here with you all. Um, Bina has already said that I would be presenting work that ESID had commissioned, and this is a second phase work. So the work that we are do, I'll be presenting emer emerges out of the first phase work. So in the first phase work, what we started looking at was what allows women to influence change. So not just what leads to women's inclusion in different uh, political institutions, but what enables their capacity to influence that policy outcomes that you see. So that was a comparative research, uh, which the book is based on. And we looked at basically the nature of political settlement. We looked at the nature of political settlement, which is in simple words, what is the nature and distribution of power or balance of power between different actors and uh, how that influences what gender equality policy coalitions are able to do? And how does that explain variation of outcomes? And when we looked at domestic violence policy, we looked at the speed of adoption of that policy, but also what was the content? So looking at then how policy coalitions navigate and negotiate the different uh, political spheres, but also the way they push for, forward their demand. Um, while we were researching this, we realized that the role of informal institutions are quite important. So you have formal rules on inclusion, formal rules on how actors operate, but you have informal norms. You make deals behind the scenes. You engage in informal practices. We all know about informal practices in the way that we know how certain things need to be done. In this country, if you want a license, this is what you do. It's not necessarily always about formal rules. Similarly, in policy advocacy, it matters in terms of knowing those informal practices. And we also realized that some of the actors are critical in terms of pushing the gender equality agenda, both within the state, but also sort of their links with the gender equality coalition. So we wanted to unpack that further. And the reason we wanted to do that is partly uh, in development studies, we look at many different issues. In political science, the tradition is quite uh, different. So if you look at the bargaining field of feminist institutionalist literature, they have started looking at the role of informal institution uh, that affects uh, gender equality outcomes. But a lot of the focus is on political recruitment. How do women get into political parties? How are they nominated for candidacy? So what are the informal practices and deals that are there? Because women are not part of old boys networks. So what happens there? And do they have old girls networks in, in, in that sense once they're in? So in, for us, in a sense, and a lot of this literature, not just focuses on political recruitment, but focuses on the West and uh, sometimes on Latin America, um, but not on the other parts of the world. So we, we wanted to have a conversation with the feminist institutionalists in that sense and borrow concepts from there and apply to understand what enables or how women matter in making change, but what is the role of informal networks, informal practices, critical actors? So we are actually focusing on uh, micropolitics in that sense. So 
given, given that background, we decided to focus on three countries and we, we worked through, we have partners there. So we looked at Uganda uh, and our partner was CBR, uh, Bangladesh, our partner was BIGD, and in Nepal, our partner was SSB uh, Baha. So these are the questions we asked. The first question was how do pro-gender equality coalitions engage the power holders or the elites? And whether in that engagement, the importance of informal networks and practices vary depending on the kind of demand you're making. The second uh, part was of course, unpacking the critical actors who are inside the state. So a lot of the time we say, okay, women are in power, what are they doing? And the focus is a lot on the quota women uh, or on, in, on the legislature, but there are other branches of government. There are women in executive, women in bureaucracy. So how does that engagement happen? How do these women use their positional power? How does the link between gender equality coalition and these critical actors, how, that kind of interpersonal capital matter? So we wanted to explore that in, in detail. And the third question that we are asking is of course, when you want change, particularly redistribution, there's always opposition. And so how does the oppositional coalition or resistance, uh, what does it look like? And it's not just that gender equality coalitions use their informal networks and interpersonal capital, so does the opposition, uh, oppositional coalition. So you need to understand how are they using informal institutions. So that's what the, this presentation will focus on. Next slide, please, Freya. So just to give you a gist about the policy changes, we looked at three different policies and there's a reason why we chose these three different policies and you can place them in a continuum in a, in a sense. So the first type is girls education. So girls access to education, generally primary education policy and under that, then looking at girls access, what does the policy say about that? This is an ameliorative policy in the sense that it changes uh, your condition, but it doesn't necessarily challenge male power. The, the other two policies are transformative policies. And uh, first one is what we are using Tunan Weldon's category here. Most of you are familiar with probably the logics of gender justice, so you would know these categories. Um, the first type for domestic violence law, uh, we are calling it non-doctrinal because uh, while it challenges male power, it's not necessarily linked to a religious code. Well, what you have heard, I think it's the last bit about the transformative doctrinal policy. So this is this not only challenges male power, it also is linked to challenging religious codes or customary norms. That's why it's doctrinal. It's important to have these variations because the kind of resistance you will have may vary depending on what type of policy change you're asking for and the significance of informal institutions will also vary across these cases. So we tried to test some propositions. And for us, the first prop proposition was of course what I mentioned that significance would vary. But in that variation, if it is a transformative non-doctrinal change, so for example, domestic violence law in this case, uh, you will need a wider coalition to ask for this change. But the way you would use your informal networks or your relations, the strength of that will matter in terms of what kind of change you get. But so would also how do political elites use informal practices to diffuse opposition. If you're asking for change which is transformative but doctrinal, which are unpopular, 
So for example, inheritance reform or land rights reform where you're giving women land rights, uh, informal institutions uh, probably will be deployed in, a, in an effective manner by the oppositional coalition to undermine the change you're asking for. And you will see ruling elites using informal practices in specific ways uh, to, uh, to undermine your effort. So let's look at whether these hold or not, or what the findings were. So before I get into, let's look at the findings, I'll have to give you just about what these countries uh, look like, uh, because uh, not all of you may be familiar with all the different types of countries that we are looking at. So this is just a quick, brief bird's eye view. Obviously there are variations in terms of how the countries are, uh, but along the key categories. So we have three countries, as you know, um, in terms of the nature of democratic politics for the period that we are looking at for policy change and executive dominance, Bangladesh has two main key political parties who play, who come into power like playing cricket. One time one gets elected, next round the other gets elected. And uh, executive dominance is very strong. So the legislature is very, very weak. Um, uh, in terms of Nepal, with respect to what the nature of politics looks like, it, it's a multi-party democracy. Uh, but obviously after post-conflict transition, which is in, in the middle of last decade, that the competition has become quite strong. Uh, in terms of Uganda, you have national revolutionary movement. NRM is the dominant party, although its dominance has become weaker over time. When you ask for gender equality change, obviously you have veto players, particularly for doctrinal change, it's important to look at the religious networks and actors. For Bangladesh, uh, it's quite strong. It's not just the Islamist political party, Jamaat, which has recently has been sidelined, but you also have civil, civic platforms. Resistance also sometimes comes from bureaucracy, depending on what kind of policy change you want. For Nepal, uh, it was interesting that the religious actors were weaker, but the caste-based informal coalitions were quite strong. For Uganda, it was interesting to see that the church and religious networks do play, can veto the kind of change that you are asking for. The president, of course, has a lot of power. In terms of women's movement, all of these countries have uh, quite a long history of women mobilizing and engaging, but obviously it also happens in ebbs and flows depending on what critical juncture you are facing and what, what is going on. So the place of women's and strength of women's movement has changed over time and varied for the countries in different ways. All of these countries have women's ministry established at different times, but the women's ministry is a weaker ministry. And the last thing that you would ask is, are women in politics and are, do they have quotas? Yes, all countries have quotas, they were instituted at different times and women's presence, uh, how they came in through quota and general seats have also varied over time. So let's look at the type of policy change before I get into the finer details. So this is an overview of quick of bird's eye view of the three countries and what's happening in, in the different policy areas. In terms of girls education, you can see that this was passed in the 1990s uh, for Uganda and Bangladesh. In Nepal, it was a little later, but Nepal already had a focus on universal education way back in the 90s also. Uh, in terms of having a coalition for gender equality that would push for a girl's access to education, it wasn't needed. Women were more involved as technical advisors. In terms of resistance, uh, it was very hard to find anybody who'd say girls don't need to go to school. That was probably a debate that was happening in the earlier <laughs> century. Uh, let's look at domestic violence law. 
Domestic violence law, as you can see, for three countries, it was passed in the last decade. Uh, the policy coalitions existed and they were quite strong. The resistors, of course, there are presence of resistors from bureaucracy or the male MPs or church. It varies across which country you're looking at, uh, but resistors were few. Let's look at inheritance and land rights. So for Bangladesh and Uganda, you can see this was passed in the 90s, the policy that we are looking at. So for Bangladesh, it's the national women's development policy, not necessarily an inheritance law. For Uganda, it was the Land Reform Act. And basically the clauses that were there or the provisions that were there that was talking about equal inheritance got lost. So they are named as a lost clause. In Nepal, uh, the inheritance code was reformed. So which is the surprise. Uh, you have two failures, one success. And you can see that actually resistance came from many different actors in, in all countries against this doctrinal change. And uh, there were policy coalitions, but policy coalitions were probably weaker in Bangladesh and in Uganda. So these are the main areas of contention around what kind of change was being asked and why there was resistance. Around domestic violence, it was, in all countries, it was about marital rape. You could not um, have that. It was around sometimes whether domestic violence should be treated as a crime. There was lots of debates around how do you define a family? Is it only marriage or blood? Or do you include adopted family? Do you include same-sex couples? Depends. Um, and of course, the whole thing was about you're going to break families apart if you sort of introduce DV law. Land rights, of course, in Uganda was about the co-ownership clause. So it's not about land reform. It's about women, married women, having an entitlement over the marital property or the husband's property. And the main thing, the resistance, the what, what you have, I'm quoting from the president saying you, you will have from promiscuous women or women will engage in serial monogamy. But that was the main, main view. In terms of inheritance, obviously, the resistance was coming from you're trying to reform the religious code. In Nepal, it was also about age and marriage of uh, of daughters in terms of at what age do they get? And if they marry, should they have a right over parental property? So that was the, those were the areas of contention. Okay, so we are coming to the questions. So this is the first question in terms of negotiations, then how do you engage the elites and how do you use the informal networks and how are informal practices deployed? So obviously it's a no brainer that different types of policy change requires different kinds of strategies and informal networks are deployed in different ways or you engage in different way, informal practices in different ways. Um, that, that's given, but it's quite interesting to see how does it vary across policy type and what matters in terms of how the gender equality policy coalition engages. Um, what we found was for transformative policies, uh, women, the gender equality coalition needed to form a broader coalition. So it's not just your usual uh, sort of coalition members. You go to other women's movement actors or human rights groups or lawyers. You have to also build coalitions with the unusual suspects. So in, in Uganda, for example, uh, they included the Catholic Church for reforming the domestic violence law because it was a veto player. You, need, you sort of needed to diffuse that. 
or in Bangladesh, uh, for the domestic violence law again, uh, they included LGBTQI groups and also child rights groups. So it, it was broader than how you would usually form your coalitions and how you'd place uh, demands. It was also quite important to get your timing right. There were certain windows of opportunities that these gender equality coalitions were using. So critical junctures, we all know matter, but that was deployed in specific ways. So in Uganda, the constitutional framing in 1995 was key because you had the revolutionary councils and you had women as members of that, not just women in parliament, like women in other positions. And the constitution had said that within two years, you will have a land reform. So women were trying to use that to get as many reform as possible. For Bangladesh in the DV case, uh, the CEDAW review that happens in at CSW in New York was quite important because Bangladesh state wanted to show it had done something for women that it had promised to do. So there was a legitimacy issue there. In Nepal, when the inheritance code was being amended, the 11th amendment, you had the Maoist threat. And the Maoists had quite an expansive idea about how do you reduce exploitation, included, including from a gender perspective. So it required uh, sort of the political elites to give space to the demands that women were making. Apart from that, there was a lot of use of creative discursive strategies. So for example, for in domestic violence, it was not just linked to this is a violation of uh, women's rights. It was linked to this is an issue about economic development. It was linked to that men are victims of domestic violence too. In terms of land reform in Uganda, there was an emphasis based, uh, placed upon think about your daughters, not sisters, not wives, think about your daughters. So daughters were an entry point and obviously, there were lots of testimonies that were gathered so that it wasn't seen as, oh, this was an elite women's interest, women with short hair wanting this, women wearing chiffon uh, dresses are wanting this. Those were label, label, labels that were used against the gender equality coalition leaders. So it's important to, for, for the coalition to show that there were deep-rooted demands and that many different women were being affected by it. So in terms of the role of informal networks and practice, how you used it and how you deployed it varied depending on what the coalition was facing. And I'll get into more details about when I talk about the powerful women. But two things I would like to uh, highlight is sort of the informal deals that were being made. So in Uganda for the land reform, uh, Miriam Matembe, who was leading it, uh, uh, basically blackmailed the speaker saying, you either put this on the agenda or as a block, we are going to support um, the Buganda's request for secession. So we will do that unless this is discussed because there was a lot of resistance within the parliament. In Nepal, again, with the at, at the Constituent Assembly in the last decade, uh, in the first one, basically, the women agreed with the speaker that we will not raise a demand for formal caucus if you support that a gender equality bill needs to go through and that needs to be debated. So there are different deal makings happening. That was quite interesting to hear about in terms of how things go down in the, in the back door. What is also important to remember is that in terms of the pro-gender equality coalition, you know that for the education reform, there weren't any. And informal strategies or network didn't need to be deployed by women to get that change in terms of girls' access to education. So having said that, let's look at the micro politics of my finer detail. 
So the second question is about do powerful women matter and how do they matter? So this is more about women who are inside the state, inside bureaucracy in the executive. How are they using their 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 power in terms of engaging in informal practices. But it's also, you have to remember that it's the coalition members who are also engaging with these women. So these are just pictures of the women that I will talk about. I can talk about their individual identity later if you want to know in the Q&A, but let's go to the next slide. Individual women in powerful positions in the executive or inside the government do matter. It is your link with these women, the policy coalition's link, that was quite important, the personal link. You went to university with them. Your kids go to school with them. It's a, it's a different kind of social capital that you carry in terms of the creation of trust. And uh, what we found is the women were using, women in power or holding power were using their positional power as cabinet minister, as head of women's ministry, as prime minister, as sort of the deputy speaker of the house uh, to push certain agendas when things were being blocked and to defuse opposition. So a few examples here in the domestic violence case, uh, it was the woman's minister and the link with her link with the prime minister who's quite all powerful in Bangladesh mm -hmm. that it mattered quite a lot. The women's minister was the person who inter intervened. So Shirin Sharmin personally intervened when the law ministry was trying to change the draft. Shirin Sharmin personally made sure that the domestic violence law becomes a deliverable of a particular project that the women's ministry was hosting so that it would be well resourced. Uh, she was passing on information in terms of what was the discussion within the cabinet and what the policy coalition needed to do. So she was a key conduit there. In terms of land rights, you already heard about Mariam uh, Matembe's um, sort of attempt to blackmail, but in, for the DV Act itself, it was the deputy speaker of the house in Uganda who diffused resistance, who got um, the order of discussion on domestic violence changed so it would be, that law reform would be discussed. And of course, it was the small sort of group of female MPs who would target male MPs that they thought would be sympathetic towards the law. And they would corner them in corridors, corner them in canteens, but also how you sit in the house, um, which, which was quite interesting to hear about the different practices. Um, in Nepal, uh, what was very important for the inheritance code was the uh, group of women who entered the parliament. There were, there were only 12 out of hundreds, but the small group was also linked to the policy coalition. And uh, their leader, Arzurana Deupa, was married to the prime minister. So the channels of uh, influence was quite different. So they got not only pushed through the law, they got the king's approval on certain things. Similarly, when you brought in uh, in the reform later in the constituent assembly, it was Bidda Devi Bhandari who was negotiating. Although her party had said, this is not the time to talk about gender equality. And she basically threatened them uh, in a way because she was married to the general secretary of the Marxist-Leninist party and the general secretary had died. She was linked to the prime minister. There were specific positional powers that allowed her to make certain deals. So powerful women do matter and how they influence or engage or bend the rules uh, matter for promoting gender equality. So, but there are limits to what you can do in terms of bending rules or making deals. 
it depends on what kind of change you're asking. So if it's a doctrinal change, the political costs may be quite high. So you may have friends in high places, but for friends in high places to do certain things for you can become difficult. So the last question that we look at is basically the gatekeepers. So we talked about powerful women mattering and the game changers, but what about the opponents? I already talked about the oppositional coalition and how do they sort of uh, work or uh, sort of block the changes that you want. Uh, so this is just a picture and on the right hand side, you can see what anti-gender mobilization may look like. So this is a picture in central Dhaka against uh, the, uh, the supposed clause on equal in inheritance. So basically resistance as we had thought would vary across policy cases depending on the nature of change was that we saw that. But what was important also for us to think about is is it always around gender or did it have other types of dimension like class dimensions in the land reform case? Um, what, what is also important to think about is apart from the public avenue, so you just saw a picture of how mobilization may look like, the, uh, the oppositional coalition also have their personal links. They, are, they also have their informational, uh, informal channels that they gain access and they block certain things. That ha this happened in terms of the uh, anti-co-ownership clause in, uh, in, the, in how the specific group was working against Matembe's reform and how they use their links to the president and the president intervened personally to block something. Apart from that, there are also other types of practices that oppositional coalitions engage in, which is important to unpack. One is, of course, a subversion of formal rules. So you have different, it's not that it's a concentrated uh, uh, sort of coherent effort, cohesive, but things do happen. So for example, in the parliament, when the land reform bill was uh, being placed in Uganda, and you, you were talking about the co-ownership clause, when the co-ownership clause was sort of take, taken into this is being passed and the vote, um, you are presenting it, you have to present it um, uh, on while in, in mic, you have to speak in, in the mic. And there was a rowdy moment that was engineered. So that didn't happen because the speaker was busy containing the rowdy moment. And that technicality was used to say that the co-ownership clause had to be removed because the formal rules were not followed. Uh, we also found um, instances where files got lost that we know about. So the first draft of domestic violence bill got lost in Nepal. Uh, provisions got removed uh, without proper discussion. Things do happen, underhanded things do happen. The other thing that of course happened was the labeling of gender equality activists. So whether you were the chiffon brigade or whether you're anti-Islamist, uh, these labor, or whether you're short-haired women asking for things, these these things do do affect how what you can push and how you push it. And of course, moral arguments are always used against uh, gender equality uh, demands that you want to break the family, that you want promiscuous women to be promiscuous, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that led us to think that are the resistors or the oppositional coalitions better at not just using informal networks and capital, but are they better at labeling? Are they better at using the discursive strategies than, than how we do it? So just some final reflections. One is of course, how important are the informal networks practices uh, or informal institutions? Now we all could see that both resistors use it, 
but so do women. They have their own girls network. They have their own way of promoting things. So it can have both positive influence or negative influence, depending on who's using it for what. And we can also see the importance varies across what kind of change you're asking for. How significant will that be? But while informal can be quite significant, if you're asking for doctrinal change, it, it may not get you far unless you have formal institutions in your favor. We also saw that powerful women inside the state do matter. At times, they can deploy their power, not just personal networks, to diffuse opposition, but they do engage in informal practices to, to bend the rules for you. But it depends on what is the political cost to them. Why would they want to do it? What's the motivation? Um, when the formal rules are not in your favor, informal will have limits, as we saw in terms of Bangladesh and Uganda, in terms of what you get in the end and what happens. In Nepal's case, uh, the success in terms of doctrinal change may be because you also had formal institutions uh, that were working for women, not just women's inclusion, but the debate was quite different and women in different positional power were present. So apart from that, then if informal is important and, and a strategy that's used by gender equality coalition in terms of getting your foot in the door, using your personal networks and capital, um, sort of doing, discussing things with bureaucracy instead of mobilizing hugely in the street, what happens when there is specific backlash, when you have huge mobilization against a specific issue and you don't have the numbers? Or what happens when the issue is not of importance to the elite and you can't get that change that you want? You're not as an important constituency. What happens then? Uh, there are limits to the informal. So we also need to think about that. So these are some sources for phase two. So the work I just discussed, there's also a YouTube video for the DSA panel if you want to look at the specific country cases. Could I have the next slide, Brad? And this is from phase one, which uh, we talked about, Bina talked about the book, I talked about the book and the podcast YouTube clip. So basically um, it was a privilege to do this research because we met a lot of amazing women, uh, but we are also hoping that the knowledge will help to produce future leaders. And uh, that's where I want to end it. I look forward to the discussion.